0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for taking some time out today to join us as we look at our Bible study. Um, I just wanted to make mention of the fact that um, as you listen to this Bible study today or any time after today, just picture other folks sharing in this moment with you. Um, I know that there are people um, in Bible study groups, home groups that are listening to this today and uh, are going to be sharing in their Bible study around this. I know that there are people in the Simonstown Methodist Church, as well as the Fishhook Methodist Church, who are listening to this, um, as well as family and friends in broader church communities who are listening. So just picture the the greater body of Christ gathering around the Scriptures, um, and all of us sort of having a reflection on our particular Bible study at the moment, which is coming from Nehemiah. Today we look at Nehemiah chapter four, and just a quick reminder before we pray together that last week's one was chapter three with all the strange names of people, and uh, the big takeaway certainly for me in that in that chapter was that the way that Nehemiah had led the people was to to give ownership and authority to each family uh, or each grouping of people to repair the walls that were closest to their homes or even for the priests closest to the temple. Um, and I just spoke about having some kind of order. Each person had their task, there was a vision. And the overall vision obviously was to repair the walls. Um, but that was from, from last week. So today we get into how the enemy starts to oppose the rebuilding of the walls And so let's just pause for a moment, Um, Nehemiah chapter 4, and let's pray. God, as we gather around your scriptures again this week, we thank you for what they can teach us. We know that the book of Nehemiah is an historical account of what happened to the Jews during the period of the rebuilding of the walls. And we thank you, Lord God, for their example, for Nehemiah's leadership, and for this record, And so we pray that as we read it, we would find new insights, not only into the Scriptures, but into ways in which we can apply the Scriptures into our Christian lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's get right into it. Today I'm going to go back to reading it verse by verse, because, like I said last week, I chickened out in doing that because of all the horrendous names that I couldn't really pronounce myself. So I'm going to revert back to reading it verse by verse, because this week's one is not too bad. Um, So we start verse one. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think that they are doing? Do they think that they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think that they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? So it starts off right away with getting this picture of Sanballat, who remember was the governor of Samaria, just north of Judea at that particular time, um, flying into this rage, becoming more and more angry that Nehemiah and the Jewish people are kind of pursuing their dream of rebuilding the walls. And the tactic that he uses at the moment is one to ridicule and to mock the Jewish people. Tobiah the Ammonite in verse 3 follows the same pattern. He was standing beside Sanballat and he remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. So it's just really simply saying, hey, you guys are doing a shoddy job. That's such a weak wall. Um, We are stronger than you. It's just very much bully tactics. Um, The idea of that was, from afar, you could throw those comments at the people, um, belittle them, ridicule them, and hopefully to discourage them. And that's what we see. That's really in the heart of Tobiah and Sanballat. They they don't want the war rebuilt because of a whole lot of other reasons, political, economical, um, even just for their own egos. And so what they're trying to do here is to dissuade the Jews by using verbal attacks. Interestingly, just before we head on to verse 4, that one way of reading um, the end of verse 2, which in the New Living Translation says, do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap? Um, One of the other translations says, can they really bring these stones back to life? Now, I like that translation because it it has a connection for me with uh, the New Testament, you know, even when the devil tempted Jesus, spoke about turning the stones to bread, um, even when Jesus was misunderstood when he said he would destroy the temple in three days and, and raise it up again. And, and we see from the miracles of Jesus that he has the ability to turn stones back to life. In fact, it's Peter, I think, in, in the, the letter of Peter, who speaks about us as being the living stones. So we are built together to form uh, the temple of God. So just also hold that in your back, in the back of your mind because not only is Nehemiah uh, tasked with rebuilding a physical wall, but as we discover more and more that what begins to happen is the spiritual lives, the worship lives of the community also begins to, to become re-established. Verse 4. Then I prayed, so we believing this is Nehemiah. Uh, remember either him writing or Ezra the scribe or another scribe writing about the story of Nehemiah. Then I prayed, Hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt, do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger." in front of the builders now for some of us as modern christians and and modern hearers of the word this may seem quite a harsh prayer to pray Um, there is i'm sure part of us as people um, something that that relates to this prayer Um, i know jesus said you know love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you which is very much the new testament way but but this prayer gives us some insight into nehemiah Now, he's not praying, I don't see, he's not praying uh, for his own revenge, that he would seek revenge, but he sees the work that he's been called to do as being God's work. So that's why I think he uses the language here of how these people have provoked you, talking about God in verse 5, that you provoke you to anger. And it's this understanding, I think, at the back of his mind that God you are all-powerful, you're sovereign, and you can you can either ignore these these people now or if they're going to go too far, you can sort them out. You can mete out your justice um, because this, what we are doing, we believe is, is of you. And I think there's something in this for us because we, we face discouragement, don't we? We also face ridicule. We face opposition. And sometimes this opposition comes in a way that we feel is going against what God wants for us. And so, I mean, I'm not saying that we pray, Lord, smite that person or send a lightning bolt to get them. Maybe that's going a little bit too far. But there is a prayer, we call it a prayer of surrender or relinquishment, where we can say, Lord, you know the truth. You are a God of justice. And so would you just have your way? What is interesting is that the, the words that Nehemiah uses here um, find some connection in the Psalms because remember the Psalmist and David particularly is not one to mince his words. There's there's times when David felt that he was you know, about to be killed and he really prayed for God to rise up in anger. So just one example here, Psalm 7. You could read it uh, the whole Psalm in your own time, but um, listen listen to what David prays. In, uh, in Psalm 7, verse 6, he says, Arise, O Lord, in anger. Stand up against the fury of my enemies. Wake up, my God, and bring justice. Gather the nations before you. Sit on your throne high above them. The Lord passes judgment on the nations. Declare me righteous, O Lord, for I am innocent, O Most High. And we know that, that um, thankfully, the Psalms are such an honest Prayer, such an honest response um, of David and the other writers of the Psalms that they draw us into a place of also saying, Lord, this is, this is what's happening. Um, we just want to be honest before you. And so I encourage you in your own prayers to be honest, um, but also there comes a point where we have to leave the justice and the revenge to God and not take our own justice um, or our own revenge in, in situations. Verse 6, at last the war was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. So we see there's progress taking place, that despite everything, the people are working and Nehemiah is managing to keep them encouraged. And then things turn in verse 7. It says, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. So it's not anything new because, I mean, verse 1 says that Sanballat was full of rage and he flew into a rage. But now it seems that as they're standing from a distance watching what's taking place, they're beginning to become more and more afraid, I think, because they're seeing the wall going up. And so now I think what we definitely will see that the tone of their language and their mocking and their bullying goes up another level. Verse 8 says, they all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and to throw us into confusion. Now, for those of you who listened to the sermon on Sunday, um, either through uh, Hugh Till or or through myself, you would have noted that we spoke about um, the the devil and that the word for devil in Greek is diablos, which means the one to divide. And I see this also as another example of this, how the work of the enemy is to divide. Uh, The New Living Translation uses the word here, to throw into confusion. So what Sanballat and Tobiah and the rest of the crew were hoping to do was that they were going to come and throw the people into confusion and hopefully disperse them so that the work wouldn't continue. And that's really what they wanted. And certainly when we look at the work of the enemy, in the life of the world today, that's what he wants. He wants to throw people into confusion. Um, The devil doesn't have to get every one of us to follow him. All he has to do is to cause us to be confused, to divide us, to cause brokenness in relationships, and in a way, his work is done. Um, But we see that Nehemiah and them aren't gonna stand for this, so verse nine, but we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Nehemiah shows us his heart, um, confronted with opposition, moves straight away to prayer, but not just to prayer, it's prayer as well as planning and action. And this is always a balance for us, isn't it? Because some, some of us as people in our human nature, we are more people of action. So we, we kind of pray later after we've done something and it's, oh my goodness, Lord, yeah, can you help me with that? Or thank you for that. Other people are people of prayer, and maybe then are a bit slow to act. Um, and it's hard to find the, the right balance. But Nehemiah gives us this, uh, this model. He prays, he then puts people on guard, and um, he puts into action that we believe a plan that was given to him by God. And so he's a deep man of faith, but also a man who's willing to act. Verse 10, we see now that the people are starting to get discouraged. Then the people of Judah began to complain, the workers were getting tired, and there was so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. And one, one wonders if it's just the sheer amount of work, if it's um, that plus all the, the ridicule that's coming their way. Maybe there's a little bit of infighting and confusion coming in, just like the enemy was hoping. But ultimately um, there is some complaint starting to arise. And I mean we see this in any big project or anything that has to be accomplished that that requires a lot of effort and a lot of work. That there are there are moments almost like these pivotal moments where either everything can just come to a standstill or we push through that and go over the bump and, and then see how begin how things begin to, to come right. But certainly, this is one of those moments that people are complaining. Verse 11 Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, Before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. So, again, that's the modus operandi of the enemy. They want to surprise them and um, they want to end the work and then also end up killing the people. Verse 12 says, The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again. They will come from all directions and attack us." So so we see that this is a a, a neighborly uh, dispute that's taking place here. The Jews who were neighbors to the Samaritans, to Sanballat and Tobiah, were hearing rumors, probably um, from good and well-meaning people in the enemy ranks, because remember these people have been living together, many of them, for a long, long time. Um, So not every Samaritan or Ammonite was evil and and wanting to destroy them, um, because you know human nature. There are always some good people amongst the bad. And if you look at any uh, historical account of the wars that have happened, um, even recently in Rwanda between the um, you know the Hutus and the Tutsis, uh, between people in the Vietnam War in uh, the first world war second world war there are often little beautiful stories of how people who would have been seen as enemies end up helping other people Um, and so that's what i'm trying to believe i want to believe the best in this that even some of the people in the enemy ranks are telling them look hey just be careful things are going to get bad so nehemiah takes his information and then what he does is he does another thing he says Or verse 13, so I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. And I stationed people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. So he he gets people not individually, but in groups. And I think there is this understanding that in numbers, in a group of people, you feel a little bit more secure. And he actually arms them, not just with sticks or stones, but with weapons. So it's swords, spears, and bows. So the attack, imminent attack, seems very real for the Israelites. Nehemiah um, is able to arm his people to fight fire with fire, um, that they're not going to be threatened and and pushed over in this particular incident. And so that's... um, That's where end of 13 comes. Then verse 14, Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. It sounds like a rousing, brave heart kind of speech, this. And uh, if ever they made a movie about Nehemiah, this could be one of those moments where, The music builds up to this great crescendo and Nehemiah stands on the walls and he urges the people, don't be afraid of the enemy. And um, it's this speech, this rousing motivational speech that will push the people to continue the work. In Isaiah 54 was a scripture that I touched on also last Sunday where Isaiah speaks about how no weapon formed against us shall prosper. And this is the kind of language that Nehemiah is saying, look, what God has called us to is for the Lord and for his work, and so we must trust that he will take care of us. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. Um, It's interesting that in the background to this, we don't see that any of the folk up to this point have been killed in any of these uh, potential uh, skirmishes or so. But Josephus, who was the Roman Jewish historian and the one who lived right about the time that Jesus was crucified, up until the end of the first century, Josephus is one of the, the clearest historians and his records are there for us to, to see what was happening in the life of the early church. Now, now so he writes this 300 years after the event. But He claims from his research that there were some people that were killed in some of these little running battles, but I can't confirm that. Um, But in essence, what we are seeing here is that the people returned to work despite all of the, the threats. Verse 16, But from then on only half my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah, were building a wall the laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon and uh, that's just a picture i think of of how we could do life um, as christians is that we we have one hand that does the work and the other hand we hold the weapon of prayer that we are, are praying and go into every situation that we we are encountering in our lives armed with spiritual weapons Um, as well as encountering the things of life and the world around us. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. That trumpeter would have blown the shofar, um, which was the the horn of a ram usually, or or some other animal. And the idea of that was, in, in the context of the time, it was an early warning system. This is the the kind of alarm system that you have maybe outside your office or your home that if someone comes into the property, it's the early warning alarm system that the trumpeter would have seen something or or message came to Nehemiah, the trumpeter would have blown the trumpet. It sounded a huge warning and more than likely other trumpeters around the city were stationed so they could then pass on the same message via the trumpeter, which would have been, hey, get ready, be prepared. The enemy is is on its way, and maybe that also just to bring that into the New Testament um, frame of mind for us. You know, maybe that's also the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that the Spirit uh, calls us to attention. The Holy Spirit sounds the alarm when things are happening around us that could potentially threaten our faith um, and and end up disrupting us. Okay, we're nearly finished. We come to verse 19. Then I explained to the nobles and the officials and all the people, the work is very spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it is sounding, then our God will fight for us. So it's exactly what I was saying. The the trumpeter would blow um, the sound of warning and then people would rush there. The language used again by Nehemiah here is that God will fight for us. Now we see this many, many other times in the Old Testament that God is on our side. Um, in this story or this historical account, it's clear to see that the Israelites are the ones called by God to rebuild the wall and Sam Sanballat and Tobiah are the enemy trying to thwart the purposes of God. Where this phrase becomes tricky, and uh, we, we joke about it in some kind of ways, but where you have two groups of Christian people arguing about one particular thing or to maybe to make it even a more simple analogy. um, I remember in my days as a youth pastor we joined a Christian soccer league with our church in Johannesburg and then before the game we would start with a prayer. It's always tricky there because we know what do you pray? Uh, Do you pray Lord help us to win the game, but because we prayed together as two teams, two opposing teams, the the kind of prayer was, Lord, just keep us safe. Um, Because, you know, who does God choose in that that moment? Does he choose the one church versus the other church? Um, But in this case, particularly the language is, okay, we are doing these things for God, so God will fight for us. Verse 21, we worked early and late from sunrise to sunset, and half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside the walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way they and their servants could help with God's duty at night and work during the day. And I guess not just a practical thing, but also a protective thing. That they were there to, to help with God's duty, to work, but also knowing that they would be safe because they were inside the walls. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me, ever took off our clothes We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. So here we have this picture, um, and it's here for us to read and to understand that Nehemiah is saying that they were so focused on defending the walls, building the walls, that they didn't have time to even take a bath, take a shower. Okay, so... I believe it's true because it's in there for a reason Um, and we must ask ourselves how long did it actually take for them to rebuild the walls. Now we're going to come to that in a few weeks time but I'll give you a heads up that that the answer is 52 days. So if you're watching or listening with somebody today or in a Bible study group just take note of the people that are there with you and just imagine that One of you in the group didn't shower for 52 days. Can you imagine how that would work out? Um, I think the point of it is that they were so focused that they carried their weapons with them, even when they went for water, even when they went to bath, even when they went to drink water, whatever they did, their weapons were with them. And this brings us to a passage from Ephesians chapter 6, which we haven't got time to go into today because I'm already over the time limit, but that is that Paul speaks about us always being ready for the spiritual battle, that we're going into a spiritual war. And so we carry with us the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit and um, the, the, the sandals or the gospel of peace, like the, every part of that spiritual armor. And we can't afford to take it off because if that happens, then we display a weakness that is then easy for the enemy to throw the darts or the fiery arrows at us. So as we as we come to a close today, I'm going to leave it there and you can talk more about it either um, amongst your group or reflect on it yourself if you're listening by yourself. So just two things as you do that. The first one is, what task has God perhaps called you to that at the moment you feel like you're facing obstacle after obstacle? So is that a, a God given task or something that you feel prompted by God to do and are you facing obstacles in that if you are then just look at what's happened in the story of Nehemiah to to recognize that just because we're doing it for the Lord doesn't mean we won't face any obstacles so that's the first question the second thing is are you perhaps dealing with discouragement spiritual discouragement or other discouragement in your life and if you are who, who can you go to for help or who can you ask to pray for you? Um, and are you willing just to allow God to help you and to encourage you in, in his own way at this particular time? So I want to just end with a little a quote here from Max Lucado. Um, and he says this, and I'm going to read it and then pray for us. Remember that you have a God who hears you, You have the power of love behind you, and you have the Holy Spirit within you, and you have all of heaven ahead of you. So as you reflect on that in Nehemiah chapter 4, remember you have a God who hears you, the power of Jesus and the power of love behind you, the Holy Spirit within you, and all of heaven ahead of you. Friends, God bless you. Thank you for your time. And I pray that as we continue to journey through Nehemiah, we would understand God's great plan for our lives, but also understand his truth. In Jesus' name, amen.